Upon marking hymn number 32, song number 32, we'll use that at the appropriate time this morning as a hymn of encouragement, a hymn of invitation. Again, might we be appreciative and thankful for the opportunity that's ours to come together today. The blessing of God truly is great in our behalf and how special it is to each of us to extend the worship that's so much deserved unto our Heavenly Father even before us today. As I mentioned at the outset of the Bible study hour, we're thankful to be back with you today. We enjoyed, of course, being able to be a part of the VBS at Zion the other night, but we always are thankful to be able to come back, my family and I, to be here with our church family at Pippin. In fact, as was mentioned in the announcements, don't lose sight of the puzzles that are available there in the foyer as you exit the auditorium. So if you haven't had an opportunity to pick up one yet, feel free to do that, as well as to avail yourself of any of those tracks that might be of interest to you. In our study of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we have seen so many things in that book that have challenged us and brought to our attention the realization of how blessed we are to be able to worship in the essence of New Testament Christianity. For it is the superior way. The Old Testament was far inferior to it, both in the patriarchal means as well as in the Mosaic era. And in the matter of Christianity, we have before us the best high priest, the best system of forgiveness, the best kingdom that's before us, namely the church. And speaking of that today, you might have noted in the title just a moment ago, we will use verse 28 of chapter 12 as our text. Receiving a kingdom. It is so strategic the way the inspired writer brings that subject to bear and uses it to emphasize powerfully and once for all just how special and how great the church really is. Today I would invite each of us to look at the way that subject is developed and to notice how that we are able to appreciate the reception of a kingdom by way of one more thought and introduction, the duties that we have seen so far as faith is applied to our lives has challenged us to understand the necessity of our attendance at the worship services, for example. But might we ask, what about the day-to-day -day way that you and I think about the church and appreciate what it means and appreciate all that is associated with it? You see, our attendance takes place some three or four times a week. But what about, again, all the other moments of the days of our life? It is in regard to that I would invite your attention this morning. And with that said, let's turn to the first aspect of our lesson today. Let's read again Hebrews 12, verse 28. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And here we might appreciate that much has been said prior to this particular verse, but we will use this verse to shed light on much of that which falls near the end of the chapter. We see easily mentioned we. The inspired writer includes himself among those who are able to appreciate the blessing of this kingdom to which he refers we receiving the kingdom. And immediately before the mind of these Hebrew hearers would have been the question of appreciating what is the kingdom, I thought that would be the best way to begin our lesson today. Identifying from the very character of the text, what is the kingdom to which he refers? 
perhaps it might be noted near the outset that it wasn't too many days ago that at our house, maybe you've received something like it at yours, we came back and found a little pamphlet stuck in our doorway. And that pamphlet was from a nearby religious organization. And as one perused through it, there was much discussion of and description of a kingdom. And as that discussion went forward, it spoke about the time yet coming in the future when all the human family would be able to appreciate the existence of this paradise kingdom upon earth. I would ask that each of us look more intently at the kingdom, for it is significant that the inspired writer said, receiving. He did not say it will yet be received. This kingdom was then in its recognition and he said, we're now in the position and blessedness of receiving it. Those individuals, those sincere that they may have been, and earnest they may be, those who left that pamphlet in our doorway, they are centuries too late. For the kingdom is not yet to be received in the future. It existed at the time the Hebrew writer was writing. Look at how we can appreciate the reality of that fact. As we approach the life of our Savior, Jesus, the wonderful Son of God, in Matthew 4, verse 17, said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And on that occasion, here was the Son of God affirming that it was not yet far in the future from that time when the kingdom would be in its existence. Two chapters later, Jesus, as he was teaching his disciples how to pray, notice he on that occasion said, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And pausing at that point, it is significant that Jesus used a reference to the future character. At the time he prayed, the kingdom had not yet come. Notice, if you would, with me, an amazing passage found in Mark 9 verse 1. On that occasion, as again Jesus was speaking, he said, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them which stand here this day, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And thus, again, not long before his own crucifixion, Jesus, in addressing those to whom he spoke, he clearly affirmed that amongst those who are here hearing me, some of you will not die until you have seen the kingdom of God come in its power. Reminding them of that day and us till this day that the kingdom of God came within the lifetime of those who were then living. That will again affirm that those who still believe the kingdom is yet someday to come, perhaps millennia yet in the future, they are far, far too late. As those thoughts ring in our ears so majestically, we've thus seen that the kingdom spoken of in these passages, during the time of the Lord's lifetime it was yet future. But now let us ask, has that kingdom become a reality? All we need to do is look at passages such as Colossians 1.13. On that occasion, as the inspired apostle addressed the congregation in Colossae, a church of God, he stated in these words, as he spoke about the blessings available from God, he said, that God who hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son and delivered us from the power of darkness.
in sin. There is such darkness. There is such separation from the power of God, such separation from the reality of all that is He is. And on that occasion, He said, We have been delivered from that and translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. There again, the kingdom was in existence, wasn't it? The Colossian brethren were members of it, and the inspired writer affirmed that so too was he. May we never lose sight of the reality of that kingdom. Since the days of the first century, it came into existence in the language of Acts, the second chapter. How do we know that? Because notice, the kingdom in Colossians 1.13 is the same as the church. And let us return to the Hebrew letter and affirm that for ourselves. Verse 28 again made note that we receiving a kingdom, Hebrews 12, 28. But revisit just a short set of verses earlier to verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, the discussion before us this morning, my friends, is the church, the general assembly of the firstborn, verse 23, and church. This is one of the titles given to the church in the New Testament. And it is this church in verse 28 is described as the marvelous and glorious kingdom of God. Thus, we can appreciate you and I as being members of the church are members of this kingdom and this kingdom in its greatness is described in some additional ways in the rest of verse number 28. You'll notice it goes on to say, which cannot be moved. Might we give some thought for just a few moments to that aspect of this verse, which cannot be moved. Isn't it interesting and fascinating to notice that the Greek word that is here rendered that cannot be moved is exactly the same word in the previous verse that is rendered shaken. In other words, the church cannot be moved, it cannot be shaken. Might we give a few moments thought to that idea? You and I now stand almost 20 centuries this side of Calvary. Almost 2,000 years since that amazing sacrifice of Jesus. During the course of that time, men have so often, sometimes with intent, sometimes perhaps by accident, but men have brought about such great difficulties for the church. Men have prodded, men have sought to discredit, men have insulted, Men have in fact sought to tear asunder and rip apart the integrity of the church of our Lord. And sometimes they have succeeded in dividing it. Sometimes they have exceeded it in covering it with a black eye, if you please, tarnishing and luring that for which it stands. But might we note today that you and I can straightforwardly say they have never been able to bring it out of existence. They have never been able to quash it and crush it beneath the power of the evil of Satan. Jesus said here, it cannot be moved. You and I should stand eternally upon the thought that the church has purchased as designed, as set forth by God, it cannot be shaken, it cannot be moved. As you give some thought to all that that means, I'd like to take just a moment and bring into your thinking something that might be only a tangent thought to this one, but in the day that we live, it is pertinent. 
it's vital, and I'd suggest it's really essential. In fact, there are those this day and time, as they seek to bring the church into a business kind of arrangement, as they seek to turn the church into an organization much like what one finds anywhere else in the world, the following kind of description is that which you and I can find. We are aware that in the business world, the main objective is to make profit. The objective is to go forward. The objective is to serve better the clientele and thus to increase one's business and to perhaps thus to make more money. And thus, as one gives some thought to that, there are now consulting agencies in the world that one can find and you can hire them and they will come to your place of business. They will scrutinize, they will analyze, they will give consideration to the ways that you can improve your bottom line, the ways that you can in fact increase your customers. They will offer you criticism and ways to make more money. Would you believe it that there are now organizations that you can find that will do the same for the church? If our elders had the desire to do so, there are organizations that you can hire that will come and tell you, how can you increase the number of people coming to your services? What can you do to increase the bottom line of the number present? What do you need to do to increase your offering? What do you need to put in place? What strategic plan of action and vision must you adopt in order to increase in sheer number that which you wish to serve? There are websites you can seek that are set out by these businesses. It's time we stop for a moment and notice. The church of our Lord cannot be shaken. It is not in the business of simply attempting to conform itself to the modern business order of doing things. The church can't be shaken. Those who have the mantra to go forward should be very careful how they use that in respect to the church. What does that mean? When one speaks of going forward in the church, in the mind of most individuals, this is that which that means. Many will look upon the worship in which we're engaging today as outdated, outmoded, archaic, ancient, and it is better needed to be revised. And thus, in the mind of many people, when you employ that phrase, go forward, they mean to alter the way worship is done, to restructure the things that take place therein. I suspect that many, if they were to come here and consult, some of the first things they would want to ask, where's the instrumental music? I don't see a choir. They might well suggest, as they look down the listing, for instance, of those serving, where are the ladies as the spokesman of the hour? Where, in fact, is the usage of others as those who would be, for instance, the speakers, the teachers of the classes? You and I, of course, could appreciate then the idea behind moving forward for them is to make the church into a modern cultural existence. It is in that way I would ask that we look again at the verse, the church cannot be shaken. If you and I start changing things to where it's palatable to the modern society, we no longer have the church the Lord bought. We have some amalgamation of that which he attempted to make with human thinking, and thus we've destroyed its purity. We've lost the identity the Lord gave it. The church can't be shaken. 
in Daniel 2 verse 44 in the days of the Old Testament. When Nebuchadnezzar saw that dream of that image that had various metallic sections, a head of gold, it had a breast and arms of silver, a midsection of brass, and finally a, a section of iron in the leg and feet, part of iron and part of clay. But there was something else in that dream. He saw a stone made without hands. It rolled and crushed into the feet section of the image and pulverized it. And the stone grew and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. When Daniel interpreted that dream, he made note that the various metallic sections of the image represented kingdoms of men, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, the Roman. And as he identified all of them, then he came to identify the stone. What does the stone represent? Verse 44 says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That's what the stone represented. It represented the kingdom of which you and I are a part today. It cannot be shaken, and it will never be destroyed. I would submit that should be one of the most comforting thoughts to us to appreciate the longevity of and the permanence of this kingdom of which we are a part. Just as surely as we can appreciate this kingdom never being destroyed, what are some of the ways the New Testament teaches us that same fact? In Jude verse 3, we read, that when Jude was writing to those individuals on that occasion, he said, When I gave common thought or diligence to write unto you, I found it more needful to write unto you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. I would ask that we revisit the closing part of that verse. To contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. With that in mind, a question. If the faith was once for all time delivered to the saints, what does that then say about restructuring to the church to follow a modern 21st century business perspective? Well, certainly that would not be permitted. The way the church of the first century worshipped is the way we must worship. The way that the church of the first century gave their offering on the first day of the week is the way that we must do the same because the church can't be shaken and it cannot be moved. This kingdom of which we are a part is time-tested, and forever it must be the way that the Lord has structured it. But not only that. In Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, the inspired apostle, as he addressed that the churches of Galatia, here were people, and historically we appreciate that these were individuals who at times were rather forward-thinking people. They desired to look at everything that was new, to adopt that which they desired, and so they may well have been in a position to restructure how the church did its business. At the very outset of that book, one of the very first things Paul said, Though we or an angel from heaven should preach any of the gospel unto you, then that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. I wonder what Paul then would have thought about some business people coming in and trying to restructure the way the business of the church was done to follow the most modern, up-to-date matters of that day. Can you and I not hear Paul loudly echoing, though we are an angel from heaven, 
preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you. Let him be accursed. We must ever appreciate the thoroughness that God's plan as he has delivered it is thorough and complete already. But that's not all yet. What else is there in verse 28 of Hebrews 12? So far we've learned about the kingdom, and we've learned that this kingdom cannot be moved. He goes on to say, Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. What thus might we say about the aspect of grace as it is introduced in this passage? It is so telling that as one reads through the 12th chapter of Hebrews, the subject of grace explicitly is not found often until we get here. But suddenly, let us have grace. The reason this takes a great significance for you and me today is because the subject of grace is so often abused. It is so often employed to teach that which the New Testament does not offer. And here's what I mean by that. If you enter into conversation with very many religious folk, you will find that the predominant thinking relative to the subject of grace is this, that that for them means that God is very open to everything and he has an unconditional forgiveness and an unconditional acceptance of all that you believe and that I believe. To put that in other language, do what you want, rest fully on the reality of God's grace, and all will be okay as long as you're sincere and honest about what you're doing. Now, I might suggest that sounds very good to so many people. In fact, there are very many who take the perspective that they are willing to base the entirety of their life upon that thinking. I would ask us to look more carefully at what verse 28 teaches. Does that thought harmonize with this verse alone, much less a number of others that might be mentioned? One of the first thoughts I would ask us to consider. In verse 28, where is the reception of the kingdom listed as it relates to grace? Did we each take note? The reception of the kingdom is first. The having of the grace comes second. It is the case one does not arbitrarily accept God's grace separate and apart from the kingdom. Not in the kingdom, no recipient of God's grace. Let's note that again. It is imperative that one be in the kingdom to be those that are in position to receive the glorious goodness of the grace of God. As set forth for us in the Bible, Grace is nothing more than a system of instruction that God has revealed that provides deliverance from something. In the case of Noah, back in Genesis chapter 6, it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6, 8. And that simply meant, starting in the next verse, that God delivered to Noah a system of instruction whereby he could be delivered from the waters of the flood shortly to come. And thus Noah did exactly that which God commanded. He did receive the salvation from those flood waters. Today, of course, the thing from which we need deliverance is sin. It is that which blackens, tarnishes, and mars you and I, and does so in such a way that it forever separates us from God. The only remedy from it is to have it removed. You can't just paint over it. It has to be completely removed in the only way that can happen. 
It's through the agency of what God has given as the only medicating thing for it, the blood of Christ. Look at some of the ways that grace is set forth for us. To notice what sin does. We notice the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. James 1 verses 13 to 15 affirms the same, that the inevitable end of sin is death. With the thought of what sin brings, notice how God so beautifully sets before us deliverance through His grace. In Romans 5 verses 1 and 2, we expressly learn that God has set forth His grace and you and I respond in obedient faith. Friend, today, have you responded in obedient faith? Have you turned over the completeness of your life in response to the offer of His graceful goodness to you? Do you live a life by faith day by day? Not just on Sunday and Wednesday, but tomorrow and Tuesday and Thursday, Friday and Saturday as well. It is to be noted that that grace that is set before us in this chapter again involves your membership in the church. If you are a member of the body of Christ, to this point you have not received the spiritual blessings offered through the grace of God. That's the teaching of this verse before us. It is no wonder then that those who downplay the importance of the church do so to their own eternal peril. Several years ago, more than one book was written. To this day, it's a little bit more challenging to find them, but still, there occasionally are those authors who will state that Jesus is the important thing, the church is not. Uh, each of us should cringe in disbelief, practically, at the thought of any such notion as that. To think that the church is unimportant, to think that it's insignificant, to think that it's something that is merely optional, and yet, we're each aware that many teach that very thought and idea. Notice again, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The deliverance that you and I can know from sin is to be had in the grace of God, which is in Christ, which is in the church. That chain is absolutely taught on many occasions in the New Testament. I would draw to your attention, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, salvation is in Christ. But 2 Timothy 2 1, God's grace is in Christ. So if we are not in Christ, we are not the recipients of His grace. One can only become to be in Christ by being baptized. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen as well as Galatians 3, 26 and 7. I suspect that all of that leads us to notice the way this verse ends. Serving God acceptably. And we'll use that thought to close our lesson this morning. Serving God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. One of the first things that we can conclude. All service to God is not acceptable to Him. All that is done in the name of service to God is not acceptable. Let me reiterate. And in fact, isn't that what Jesus stated in Matthew 7, verse 21? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of God. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, for many shall say unto me in that day, 
Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and in thy name cast out devils? That's only through verse number 22, then verse 23. Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And near the in beginning of verse 22, what was it the Lord asserted? He asserted that there would be those on that day of judgment that would make the claim of having done service in the name of God. We've cast out demons. We have done many mighty works. In your name, Lord. But then isn't it an unforgettable truth that Jesus said, I never knew you. Their claim, you see, wasn't true. It was false. They claimed to be doing that which was acceptable to God. They claimed that that which they were doing in earnestness, in honesty perhaps, was nonetheless a direct thing in service to God, but yet Jesus said, I never knew you. We learn in Hebrews twelve twenty-eight that to be acceptably serving God requires the reception of a kingdom, the church. Unless it is the church for which Christ died, the church that he bought with his blood, the church that properly wears his name, then it's not the church in which one can acceptably serve God. And furthermore, we notice that that acceptably serving God involved reverence and godly fear. Reverence. One of the most difficult things sometimes to appreciate in our world is a proper reverence for God, isn't it? Sometimes God is looked upon as an equal to the human family. Some look upon him as being not much better than a member of the human family. But yet, reverence. And it's interesting, that word means piety or godly fear or veneration. And that other word in this verse, the word all, You'll notice that that word fear, I'm sorry, literally means the word all. The very last word in verse number 28. The word all, A-W-E. We notice in a passage like this one, the proper subject of a word like that one. We live in a day and a time when the word all has come to be more or less misused almost all the time. Many things are said to be awesome. Many things are said to, in fact, lead one to have a feeling of awe. Sometimes a person goes and has his favorite kind of ice cream and they'll reply, that's awesome. I'd submit to you the ice cream is not worthy to be worshipped. The ice cream isn't worthy of godly fear. The ice cream is not literally awesome. Nor is any human being, nor is any action that a human being can do. It is God that is to be approached with reverence and with godly fear. And sometimes that misuse of that word has clouded your thinking and mind. As we hear the word used, we've now fallen into the habit of using it in ways that have taken from it the greatness of its meaning. It doesn't have anything to do with talking about ice cream or sporting activities or a car It talks about having an attitude of reverence and having an attitude of godly fear and having an attitude of appreciation of what God has been able to accomplish and do. It is all of these things that we have seen in light of the church this morning. I would ask as you come here to close of that slide, one final thing is worthy of our attention. 
as we've looked at the kingdom this morning, these four points, might we ask, in the description, has any of it depended on what you or I have thought about it? Is there anything about the kingdom that is determined by your thinking or your preferences or mine? And the answer is no. It's government, it's worship, everything about it in terms of design has been set forth by the, by the revelation of the God of heaven. And in that regard, our God, verse 29, is a consuming fire. God will not look lightly upon those who tamper with the church of his Son. He will not look lightly upon those who take to themselves the liberty of attempting to change it, to bring it into a modern era, if you will. The old Jerusalem gospel is still the basis upon which it must be founded. With those thoughts in mind, we perhaps may then look at a conclusion statement. You and I are in the same position as they to whom this particular verse was written. We've received a kingdom too, and it cannot be moved. And in it we receive the grace of God, because it is in it that we serve God acceptably, with reverence and with godly fear. Today, as we've assembled to serve God in those very ways, We've sung these hymns of praise. We've prayed collectively together. We're shortly to surround the Lord's table. We've studied a portion of his word. As we've done all of that, we it has been our attempt, honestly and openly with all the eagerness and fervor within us, to serve him acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. We've identified the kingdom. Are you a part of it? Is your name, notice again verse 23, enrolled in heaven? If you're a faithful member of the church, it has been. It continues to be. And if you live faithfully till death, it will continue to be. Is your name enrolled in heaven this morning? If it's not, there may be one of two reasons as to why. One, maybe you've never allowed it to be first enrolled there. Maybe you've never become a Christian. We notice that in the receiving of a kingdom, you need to become a member of that body by responding in faith. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name, the name of Christ, and be baptized for the remission of sins. Upon so doing, you will be admitted into the kingdom. If you have done that, but you need the prayers and strength available from brethren today. Maybe you're struggling greatly with some issues in life, and you just need prayers of strength. Maybe you have fallen away from your first love, Revelation 2.5. Come back to that first love today. If we could assist you in either of those ways, we'd be happy to help. If you only let us know, while well, together we stand and while we sing.